Hi there, this is Kent Roundy at USH Med Student with a new group of victims uh, for a podcast. Although it's not entirely new, I think Scott, you've been with us at least once before. And Danny, you have been with us before as well, but it's been a while. Yes. All right, let's start with introductions of the uh, non-stars of today's show. So, uh, Danny, how about if we start with you? My name's Danny Hansen. I'm a fourth year medical student at Rocky Vista University. And you asked to come back. I did. I, I chose this. I don't know what is wrong with you. <laughs> uh, I'm the brand new victim. I didn't choose this, but I'm very happy to be here. My name is Kristen Kapustinski. I'm a third year medical student at Rocky Vista University. And Kristen is absolutely accurate. She did not choose this. There was desperation in this placement, I think. I got a call a couple of days before this rotation started, uh, or not a call, an email saying, uh, we need placement for three people emergently. And we were managed, we were able to find a placement with Dr. Thomas and with me here. And uh, it's good to have you here. I'm happy to be here. And then uh, the star of this, sh this show today, uh, Scott, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're going, and how you decided on this topic. I'm Scott Osaboyan. I'm a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner student at uh, University of South Alabama. Um, this is my last uh, rotation for my program. I'm hoping to uh, finish up and graduate this December. And I chose this topic because it was pretty interesting to me. I didn't know what ACT is or the Assertive Community Treatment was until my uh, preceptor this summer told me about it and how cool it was for him. Um, he had uh, pretty much a, a buddy um, that he knew who did ACT or they called it uh, street psychiatry where he would go and give long acting injections to, to uh, individuals, especially homeless individuals, um, to prevent them from coming back to or getting readmitted to the hospital, which you know eventually will save a lot of money for the institution. I think the idea was also less, uh, fewer problems ending up in prison, jails, yes. and Psychotic I think even, symptoms. yeah, one of the other goals I think was maybe even to help build into uh, not homelessness, but homefulness. Homefulness. Homefulness, <laughs> if that's the word. I thought this was a great topic. Now, assertive community treatment is largely focused on what we sometimes call SPMI populations, or severely persistently ill, or severely and persistently mentally ill populations, SPMI. And uh, there's this really great history behind that. But to make sure that we have some high yield fact at the beginning, we're going to stop and just review the criteria for schizophrenia very quickly uh, and you're up. Okay um, so I'll just review this for uh, the benefit of shelf exams and also for this podcast but schizophrenia has um, five criteria that uh, we draw from to make the diagnosis. Three of them are what we call positive symptoms, two of them are negative symptoms and I like to think of positive symptoms of, as the addition of abnormal uh, symptoms or behavior and negative symptoms as um, the absence of normal behavior or function. And um, the three positive symptoms are delusions, hallucinations, um, or disorganized speech. The negative symptoms are grossly disorganized or catatonic, which is sort of like d withdrawn or... Can I have a couple of 
kinds of catatonia, yeah. but I think the key aspect of that is just an absolute inability to interact with the environment. There are some uh, versions of uh, agitated catatonia, and then there's also like a waxy flexibility where you can actually have somebody sitting there and they'll be so like immobile that you can move their arm and the arm will stay there where it's moved to. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. and, and just a quick uh, question here. Do any of the three of you know how you would treat out of uh, how you would treat catatonia? Uh, Ativan. <laughs> which is also known as? Lorazepam. Very, very good. So I'm going to maybe make a couple of comments on what you just said. Mm -hmm. The first uh, criteria, so there are what, A, B, C, D, E, F criteria with a couple of modifiers. And within that A criteria, we find most of the key aspects of the five criteria that Kristen was talking about. Some people would call disorganized speech a positive symptom and grossly disorganized behavior may or may not be a negative symptom depending on how it's viewed. I think there's some discussion about that, but generally speaking, I like the, the breakdown between positive and negative symptoms. And one of the key aspects of the diagnosis, the way I read this is that you need to have one of those first three criteria, either delusions, hallucinations, or grossly disorganized speech slash incoherence as one of the two of those five. And then after that, there are the uh, like the exclusionary criteria, like if it's schizoaffective disorder, you can't diagnose schizophrenia. There are a couple of other things along those lines as well uh, that I think are very important, and I usually mention other podcasts such as the uh, loss of social occupational uh, functioning, right? The, the inability to function in the roles that had typically been in place. Now you use the word normal behavior, I use the word typical behavior, I'm not sure which is a better word, um, but the absence of things that we would normally expect, right? Now in that vein, there are a couple of questions that show up repeatedly on the exams, and they have a lot to do with timelines. So even though uh, the diagnosis of schizophrenia requires two or more of those first five criteria for a significant portion of time during a one-month period, um, the reality is the test questions focus on the first month as being a brief psychotic disorder, months two to six, months two through month six, I should probably say, would then be called Schizophreniform disorder, and then at month six, uh, generally we start thinking about diagnosing schizophrenia. Um, with that in mind, I want to go back to a brief history. I'm going to I'm going to go back to the 1950s. We've talked a little bit of, in previous podcasts about the development of antipsychotic medications. I think we talked about Janssen experiment, experimenting on his neighbors, and we talked about. Uh, elaborate and uh, I forget the other French surgeon who were trying to figure out ways to have surgery surgery go more well right and then their their transfer of that information to the local sanatorium in France um, but we haven't really talked about deinstitutionalization all that much I want to tackle that just a little bit there were a lot of things that were happening in the 1950s and 60s even maybe as early as 1946 when the National Institute of Mental Health was formed there were some pop culture movies that came out which put um, state hospitals in a very negative light, right? a terrible light. Um, there was also a civil rights movement that was pushing to give people uh, appropriately rights to ensure that there weren't abuses within the system. Um, and at the same time, there was the institution of the 1963 
Community Mental Health Act. Now, there are, there's actually a more technical name for this, but it's, this is what it's known by. And interestingly enough, this was an act that was passed 72 to 1 by the Senate. I know I'm seeing eyebrows throughout this room. I, nobody would have ever imagined that a group of people that get, could get together uh, to try and address community mental health or to try and improve the quality of health for uh, people that are really struggling with uh, schizophrenia. Or, or other severe mental illness. And interestingly enough, the House also passed this at a margin of 335 to 18. So this is 1963, uh, President Kennedy signed off on this. And uh, there was just this great amount of hope. There was a lot of hope that we could help people move from the state hospitals to the community. Now there were a couple of other things that were happening. There was a court case, Lake versus Cameron, where we came up with the least restrictive uh, setting, uh, which you'll hear periodically. So we needed to be able to move patients from the state hospital to a less restrictive setting as possible. And then uh, O'Connor versus Donaldson a little bit later, that the only way you could end up in a state hospital was if there was severe risk to self or others, right? So other, other uh, reasons for hospitalization were no longer considered valid. And then uh, a few years later, 1999, we had the Olmstead uh, lawsuit where the American Disabilities the Act, the American Disabilities Act was applied to mental health, and the requirement is that community mental health systems and the state hospitals provide services to meet reasonable needs both in the at the state hospital and in the community. And there was a requirement of that. So there's a series of laws that now push patients from the state hospital out. And at the same time, there was some changes in funding. So Medicare uh, funding changed somewhat so that it was uh, less financially um, induced, so to speak, to have state hospitals. There was some uh, inducement rather to have hospitalizations in the community where the federal government ended up paying for more of that uh, more directly rather than uh, the state hospital funding that largely funds, or the state funding that largely funds the state hospitals. So, so there's this huge push, and oh, and at the same time, we have antipsychotics coming along. I think I mentioned that. So, uh, Thorazine and a couple of other medications. And the idea is, hey, we don't have to have people in the state hospitals. So, at its peak in about 1955, there was over half a million people in state hospitals. That changed very dramatically, and by the year 2000, we had uh, a tenth that many in state hospitals. State hospitals were sheltered around the, the country, people that had been living in-state hospitals were then moved into the community and unfortunately there were a lot of problems with this. Now to try and address this change, this was brand new, right? Sanatoriums had existed for hundreds and hundreds of years. I think one of the articles we looked at even suggested that asylums, which is one of the names that sanatoriums or mental health hospitals or state hospitals have had over the years, were uh, present as far back as uh, in Greece, right? And so the deinstitutionalization uh, began. The Act of 1965 set up these community health centers and there were five services that they were supposed to be providing. The first was consultation and, and education for community and professional organizations, inpatient facilities, outpatient facilities, emergency responses to crises, and partial hospitalization to try and move from the full-time hospitalization of the state hospitals. This uh, program had a variable response 
only about half of the buildings that were, there was $150 million set aside for this over three years. About half of those buildings that were projected to be built, uh, 1,500 ended up being built. So the, the infrastructure didn't end up getting into the community very well. And the services that were provided were, um, even though the NIMH, if I understand correctly, was supposed to monitor that, uh, the services varied quite a bit. Some of the community mental health centers essentially said, we don't want to have to work with the patients coming out of the state hospital. We'll take less well people and take the money that is earmarked for the SPMI population to help those less well people. As a result, we, we also saw a lot of experimentation and uh, one of the really cool things that came out of this from my perspective is some studies that started in about 1970. So within a few years of really this Community Mental Health Act being started, we now have some studies happening in New York. And I think that's where your story starts. Does that sound right, Scott? Uh, with the family outreach studies that were the basis of the uh, TCL, which mm. is the ACT team. Oh, okay. Yeah, TCL, the original name of ACT teams were Training and Community Living, and they, those were done in uh, Wisconsin, if I remember correctly. Correct. But generally speaking, their origin was in some family outreach and some training that was done in New York City. But, so tell me how TCL emerged and how it became ACT. Well, so at first, um, mentally ill like patients were you know hospitalized for many years, and if not longer their whole life so they did uh, three studies um, which determines if it's better for them to be at home doing treatment or being at the inpatient you know um, institution um, and they found out that 77 percent of the patients benefited in the home treatment instead and if they um, were compliant with their treatment um, so i think that's a big part because when they uh, get discharged you know, their symptoms kind of uh, take over and they forget to take their medications and they ended up getting worse. Um, yeah, so, so these three studies, I think they all happened in New York City and I think they were very compelling. They simply sent a nurse to the home. Does that sound right? A public health nurse went to the home. That's all that happened. They did some med monitoring. Um, problem solving, I think, was a part of that as well. So from these very small papers that were published in small trials, we now have a group in Wisconsin that builds this TCL program, right? Mm -hmm. And they had some very specific goals in this program. Do you, do you have a copy of those goals? Do you want to talk about what they felt like the conceptual model of the TCL needed to be? Well, for, uh, well, let me see. for the goals, they needed for, uh, for them to be able to have a better outcome is um, they need to have a, like food, water, shelter, or like the material needs, mm -hmm. um, the basic needs of life, um, medical care as well, clothing. Um, they need to have like transportation to get to their appointments or um, shopping and whatnot, preparing meals, budgeting, and just pretty much just motivation from um, peers or co community that could help them so they, they don't feel like they're alone. And to avoid that isolation, right? Very and, easy to mm -hmm. become paranoid. 
close in, stop going to your appointments, stop taking meds. So, yeah, I thought that was really uh, brilliant to have that motivation piece as well. Go ahead, sorry. And um, I think the more important one is just being assertive as well, um, involving them with everything without the, with the treatment, not just like telling them, hey, you should do this, but also like making them, uh, letting them know that this is why we're doing that and and maybe that will also increase their compliance and adherence to treatment. Yeah, they, they, they weren't willing to let patients get sick, mm -hmm. right? They were, they, I think, almost pushy, right? We mm -hmm. are going to go to the doctor. You have a medical need. It, it's the idea, I, th I think, in a sense, if you go back to Freud, he would sit behind the person he would do psychoanalysis with, and there was minimal interaction. And so this is a very, very different approach than the traditional Freudian kind mm -hmm. of stuff, right, where you're actually going to the patient. You don't wait for them to come to your office. You're going to their house, mm -hmm. right? This is the assertive portion. We're going to work to ensure that you have the basic necessities of life, and we are going to be responsible for those, right? Mm -hmm. We're going to make sure that you learn how to have skills to live independently, and we're going to be responsible to teach those. That was the mantra of this TCL, right? You are going to, we're not going to let you isolate. We're, we're gonna, we're gonna come find you. Right? We're gonna do everything, pretty we're, much. We're gonna do it, yeah. and we're going to support you when you're doing it on your own. Mm -hmm. So there were some pretty amazing outcomes from this, uh, this approach. What were they? Um, well, they found out that with, with that approach, they um, saw less, uh, let's see, like less re-hospitalization uh, re of the patient, they less symptoms of that they have and more um, compliance to treatment as a, like, because they have like nurses, social work, we have therapists coming to their house. So they're more in, involved with everything. Um, and they found out that w using that, they, they saw community-based support and training was very, much pretty effective, and so they created the the act, the assertive community treatment. Yeah, um, and then the, also with that, they saw holistic and multidisciplinary team. Holistic meaning like they um, does not they don't just care about the men, their mental health, but also their activities of daily living, mm -hmm. um, and. Again, I think we kind of talked about the multidisciplinary team having those services provided to them, which initially just helps with their whole recovery in the community. So I was really impressed with how big of an impact the ACT teams had on patient stability in the community. I was equally as impressed by how quickly the patients who lost that ACT team support decompensated when these studies were being done. Did you read that the same way as I did? So I read that once you withdraw ACT team support, patients were almost immediately collapsing, right? They didn't maintain the employment. They were more employed than their peers who were given treatment as usual. They were not being hospitalized at the same rate. They seemed to have better relationships with people. They were doing, they were even doing recreational things that their peers weren't doing, right? I love that. And then when the study ended, I think there was some follow-up analysis that showed that the patients just didn't continue. And one of the tenets of the ACT team, as I understood it, became unlimited duration of treatment. 
Mm-hmm. Now, with the changes in the mental health system, I'm going to go back now to the story that we started. Um, there were groups building support for community maintenance or community support, right? ACT teams were part of this. On some level, so at the time, by the way, these were called radical, right? These ideas that you would support a patient, help ensure that they can make a successful transition to the community, help provide basic medical needs and, and uh, basic living needs, right? This was radical at the time, and I, I got a kick out of that word. But we, a lot of these things started to be implemented by the community mental health centers. But even that was not enough. We started to develop this very large homeless population. Um, according to one of the articles I read, uh, deinstitutionalization has has probably been has probably gone too far. Uh, with their point being that approximately one to two people per hundred or per thousand probably need, let's see, I think it was actually 15 per 100,000, I've got my numbers off, probably need long-term hospital support. We're trying to do our best with things like ACT Team and community mental health, but there's still this, this huge group of people that probably would be best served by being in an institution, and yet they're not. And where do those, where do those patients end up? Well, roughly half a million of those patients are currently in uh, well, as of 2015, they were in prisons and jails, right? And there were another uh, number that I didn't find, a, a very large number of patients with severe mental illness who are now homeless. So ACT teams, it looks like, the way I read the data, when the studies are done now, they don't seem to stand out as much against treatment as usual. I think the case that uh, Bond and Drake made, so this was the critical ingredients of an ACT team, mm-hmm. they talked about it being assertive, holistic, multidisciplinary, direct services, not brokered. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's a critical issue. Uh, low client to staff ratio and 24-7 coverage over the long term, right? Sure. And even in this article, uh, they talk about the use of, uh, what is it, the DAX or something, the Dartmouth uh, ACT uh, scale to see if you're actually meeting fidelity or not. Um, even though they're making the case that new variants of ACT don't have the same kind of data to support their efficacy, I think he's also making the case that the landscape has changed and ACT needs to change as well. That We need to be able to be more nimble as uh, professionals and be able to use ACT teams in a way that is no longer unlimited, but maybe builds a bridge to uh, from point A to point B, maybe from uh, the state hospital to transitional care or from transitional care to the community. But I think he's also making the case that there's probably something that we need to do in rural areas where there's not a critical mass for services. And perhaps even, um, I think there are forensic ACT teams now and a couple of other uh, ACT teams for borderline personality disorder. Mm -hmm. And so there's a, a growth of these ACT teams. Where that goes is not entirely clear to me. But what is clear is that if you can have an ACT team that's responding to a crisis, we probably have the best chance of minimizing both the homelessness and the incarceration problem that's been associated with deinstitutionalization, right? So so I wanted, I think we're now at the point where we jump to that, right? Where we talk about the value of an ACT team, not only in terms of the humanity, but also in terms of the financial value. And I think, Danny, you have that, is that right? Or am I totally uh, wrong? 
group home versus or your group home versus ACT difference. Is that right? Yes, sir. Why don't you tell us the difference between just what a group home is and what ACT is at ACT teams are? Yeah, as a bit of background, before medical school, I'd spent around two and a half years working at a group home that's located one of the facilities throughout Orem and Provo. It's called Chrysalis, located predominantly in Utah and Nevada. And a group home would be defined as a group, generally three or more people who are not family members, but living together in a home in a residential area that still gives them a lot of supportive care, supportive living would be the phrase that they use most often. My experience with that seemed kind of an in-between of ACT and an institutional facility like the Utah State Hospital. The goal was for the individuals to be a part of the community, to be integrated fully into the community while still receiving a lot of the other help that was given, but in the way that it was different than ACT was there was always someone there with the individuals at the group home, whereas with ACT, whether the individual was living on their own or with family, a nursing staff or whoever it would be would not be with them all the time, whereas at the group home there was always care, and they would, they would still provide medications, take them to doctor's appointments, the they had therapy sessions at least twice a week. It would help with them. And there were times where the individuals would, whether it was refusing medications for a long period of time or something just wasn't quite right and they, they were decompensating in a way, there were times where they would be transferred to a more institutional facility and I think the benefit there is that they would bypass the legal system because a lot of them had had previous legal interactions had been previously jailed and so this was one one benefit that I see of a group home type facility is that when we see things starting to go south quickly we can bypass any other legal troubles coming their way. Mm -hmm. I think the advantage of the ACT team is that it could be involved with patients that are involved in a group home. A group home is more of a, in the state of Utah, the group homes have been more involved with what we would call DSPD populations or uh, generally are patients who have intellectual disability, right? right. And so the group homes, there, there has been a significant push away from uh, any sort of institutionalized living, and there, some of the state responses to some of the legal precedents that I mentioned before have been to try and push patients with schizophrenia and severe mental illness into nursing homes or group homes. And a lot of legislation that has followed has tried to undo that and continue the trend of uh, deinstitutionalization, right? So somewhat different populations, right. but not necessarily uh, a group of people living together is somewhat different than a group home, which at least in Utah has been largely for DSPD purposes. Right. Okay. And then, um, so we talked a little bit about homelessness now, right? and I mentioned that one of the things that seems to have come out because of deinstitutionalization is homelessness, and you have some data on that, right? Yeah. Uh, so 
let's see here. I'm going to talk about pretty much the effectiveness of ACT for the homeless people, especially with those with severe mental illness. So uh, in, that, in this um, article, research shows that they studied 152 homeless persons with um, severe mental illness in uh, Maryland. Uh, the mean age is about 37, and the, major the majority of the, this homeless individuals are have been homeless for like a year and 34% of them have been homeless for at least four years. And it showed that, um, that with the use of ACT compared to standard care, um, the overall average cost of patient using ACT were about 15, almost $16,000 less uh, than, the, than the usual uh, care of a patient. So I think that's a, uh, you know, a huge difference from, um, especially with patient, uh, homeless individuals with severe mental illness who has been being readmitted to a hospital and um, it just saves them, it saves a lot of money uh, with the use of the act. I want to focus on that just a little bit. That ties together one of the loose ends that I read about in a couple of the articles, which is the idea that the financial incentives now are set up to kind of have a, what might be viewed as catch and release, right? Where patients cycle repeatedly through hospitals, so there are very expensive places to provide treatment, and those are emergency rooms and hospitals. And the idea is that because of the changes in funding, the state has less cost, and the federal government picks up more cost for being for for having the laws aligned this way, right? And so changing those rapid readmissions or the frequent number of admissions and the number of days seems to be the benefit. Mm -hmm. Was there any data in that article that you read, the DeForge article, about reducing homelessness? Um, that might be the Coldwell and Bender article that's coming up next. Oh yeah, so let's see. So this has showed that with the, like today, the pretty much the homeless Homelessness in individuals are increasing uh, drastically still, and 20 to 30 percent of those homeless individuals with severe mental illness uh, show that about 37 percent of them, compared to the standard care management, had improved with their psychiatric symptoms. And overall, the cost of effective of those um, severe mental illness patients. Um, were have been pretty much beneficial due to the reduced hospitalization and the use of their hospital hospital and emergency services as well. Right, so let me just go back and make sure I understand this. So first of all, this article is from 2007, right? Correct. And they're estimating the homeless population at that time at 200,000. I would be shocked if it's not triple that at this point, right? And uh, at that point, roughly 20 to 30 percent of the people within that population have a severe mental illness. That's a pretty significant number, right? So we're talking somewhere around 80,000 of that population, at least, roughly, right, mm -hmm. that, at that time. Um, or 60,000, rather. My numbers are really terrible. 40 to 60,000 people at that time. And the meta-analysis, which took 10 studies, showed that, generally speaking, the studies showed reduction in homelessness using ACT mm -hmm. and a reduction in symptomology. Is that, have I got that pretty well? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So so let me just make sure I'm on the right track so far. Act good. Good. Yes. Okay, good. <laughs> uh, what about, so we've talked about the challenges that our patients have staying with medications, right? Mm-hmm. 
those can be a number of reasons, right? Sometimes it's that our patients uh, try to go to a pharmacy, they don't have transportation, they don't have funding in place, they somehow manage to not fill out the right paper at the right time, and they lose uh, Medicaid or Medicare coverage. Uh, medications don't feel great. Sometimes, well, generally we hope that the medications feel better than the illness, but that's not always the case for our patients, right? So mm -hmm. staying on medications can be very challenging. Our homeless populations have the greatest difficulty sticking with some sort of collaborative medication plan, right? How does the ACT team involvement in a homeless population affect outcomes with treatment, uh, treatment collaboration, treatment adherence? Well, um, like we mentioned before, like they provide pretty much have everything to them, um, such as medication, their medication, delivering it to their home, or uh, bringing it, or you know, helping them pay, or I guess be able to like afford the medications, and um, supervising them with their own treatment, uh, making sure that they're you know taking their medication, um, doing following up with their um, site, uh, nurse practitioners who decides on which medications they're going to be on. I think overall that kind of like helps them with their compliance. Mm -hmm. But being homeless is, you know, it's going to be hard for them still. And so that's how like ACT kind of like help them provide a home and um, be able to do all these things that so they have a better, uh, better outcome. outcome. So one of the one of the words that has changed over the last few years that I've been practicing medicine is the term medication compliance, and it's changed to medication adherence, and and even that term I, I think I still have a little bit of heartburn about, and I struggle to find the right language I like, but I think one of the things I like most about the ACT model was this was a very collaborative process, right, or patient-centered. When, when they described this TCL team as being radical, it really was. There was nothing like it at the time, right? There were the institutionalized models where we saw that people became dependent on those institutions, really unable to provide for their own care in meaningful ways. And the ACT teams, what became the ACT teams, started to help people change that, right? To develop more autonomy and treatment Compliance is certainly the case in mental health treatment where there are forced medications, sometimes in an outpatient setting. But also, in this case, I think treatment adherence or treatment collaboration uh, grew substantially. Does that sound right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so with, they did actually do a research on about 77 homeless individuals um, with, with the act, with the use of act regarding their compliance for one year. Uh, most of the individuals had schizophrenia or uh, different disorders like a schizoaffective or substance use disorders and they've been most of them have been homeless for at least five years and that, that they found out that with the with the use of act 29 percent were uh compliant like at the at the very beginning and later on after three months that it, it pretty much increased to almost 60 percent so that they uh, we with this research they we kind of like know now that act is really helpful at um, helping those homeless individuals with severe mental illness be more compliant with their medication. Yeah. Um, I think there's a lot to be said for um, some sort of outreach 
assertive outreach, right? You go to the person to try and provide that care. And, and I think uh, article after article that we looked through, most of these articles were published between 1980 and 2000, right? Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, I think the articles that we read after that seem to show, like I said before, less benefit with ACT, a sort of community treatment, than it did right after deinstitutionalization. Okay. And so I, I think, I, I'm hopeful that these really great ideas that were part of that original TCL team, right? Treatment, community, what was it? Treatment to community living? Mm -hmm. Tra training in community living, right? These initial studies that were so radical that focused on these really core principles of being assertive, being holistic, being multidisciplinary, having appropriate ratios, and taking the time necessary. And also with these kinds of thinking things that were so, so unique, right? Freedom from pathological relationships, including a state hospital. That's a pathological relationship, according to the, the ACT team, right? Very fascinating. Development of uh, coping skills. Hey, the reason a lot of people decompensate is because they have a very stressful situation. If we can help with that, that's a big change. We now, at the state hospital, have things like CBSST, cognitive behavioral therapy, social skills, social skill training, Right, developed out of uh, San Diego by some uh, just wonderful researchers that's focused exactly on this kind of thing. How do you reintegrate into the community? And the, the ACT team was doing this 50 years ago. Way back then. 50 years ago, right? Um, the, the idea of um, not just that, but motivation to engage in life, right? If you talk with the guys out of the Beck Institute, or the people out of the Beck Institute, I should say, this idea of actively engaging somebody in a meaningful life, not letting them slip away into the voices or into something that will end up homeless, uh, unhappy, miserable, tormented by, by hallucinations, being a servant, keeping that from happening and helping people find their passion, and helping them provide pathways to learning how to live that passion, engage that passion, dramatic changes, right? And these are things that are emerging now, but the ACT teams, the TCL, Training, what is it again? Training and community living. These guys were doing that 50 years ago. 50 years ago. It's always interesting to me how we think we've invented something so cool recently that there's some new therapy that's you know, breaking through. And then you start reading the history of these things and you're like, oh, wait a minute. 50 years ago, the TCL was working with landlords to help ensure that patients could stay in the community, right? They were working with uh, the judicial system. They had some equivalent, it looks like, of uh, mental health court, which you know those have popped up throughout the country. And, and I think anybody that, that really is fascinated by something that, in my mind, drove care in a big way, has improved the quality of how we provide care to people with severe mental illness, I think they would do well to go back and read this original Stein and Test article from 19... 80? 80. Yeah, I think so. I think I kind of pushed you through the podcast a little bit, maybe faster than you were ready for. What did I miss along the way? What did I not give you time to talk about? I think that pretty much covers all of it, like pretty much the whole importance how, of how the acting was um, started and how they became into like um, a helpful transition to, to, to the community. I think, I think we got, I think we covered it all. So, I like that. I'm gonna get take homes from the two of you. 
Let's see, Kristen, how about if we start with you? Sure. Um, what all of this kind of reminds me of is harm reduction principles. And um, this is something that can be applied to a lot of areas of healthcare. I'm used to working in syringe services, which is more focused on um, drug use rather than mental illness care. And it is evidence-based. It's like one of the best things I've ever seen. I love that this ACT thing has been happening. I didn't, I didn't know about it until um, Scott told me about it. And it's, it's the same principles applied to mental health care, and I love it. Danny? I like this topic a lot because it gives a moment to step back and look at some of the evidence-based and evidence-driven decision-making that we can make, like at a legal financial level, whereas what sort of treatment plans are going to be the most effective, which ones are going to work, because it's definitely a population that's worth significant financial input, and we want to make sure that we're using it in the right way and not ways that just seem like it would be good, but if we're following studies whenever possible. Yeah. Scott, what was your take home? Uh, my take home is that um, we, you know, as uh, caregivers, um, for your, especially with um, patients, we uh, we do everything for, for them. We, you know, we give them resources such as ACT or, you know, anything that they could use and uh, for them to be able to have a good recovery. And that's why, that's one of the reasons why I did this is just because I felt like um, as a future uh, nurse practitioner, I want to be able to give a lot of information services available uh, to them so that they're not just living, you know, getting discharged to their home and not having anything available and eventually getting back to to the hospital and and we don't we, you know we don't want that we want the best for them and i think act and other you know cbt and other things can be really helpful yeah, i like that a lot i think the thing that surprised me the most was i i didn't fully understand the excitement and the the drive to deinstitutionalize, right? I always, in the back of my mind, imagined it was financial only, but there are a lot more other factors, right? There's the financial factors of large organizations, large institutions. There are the civil liberties aspects of, of deinstitutionalization. There are media depictions of state hospitals being really horrific places, which I think there are problems with, there have been problems with state hospitals, but clearly not to that level. And yet that was the public perception, right? And then in addition to that, the, the emergence of antipsychotic medication, changes in the laws, um, all of these things came together. I never, I never understood that the Senate ever agreed on anything 72 to one, right? That, I thought that was only for tomorrow is pumpkin day, let's celebrate, right? But no, one of the most significant uh, legal or not legal, but uh, laws passed in mental health was it, it was widely popular, and there was a lot of consensus in building it. So, so I, I never had that sense of the excitement of hope and possibility, and it, I, I think what I've seen instead when I came into the picture was 
some of the despair of where the lack of infrastructure and care has resulted in probably a very large portion of the homeless population, a very large portion of the incarcerated population. And I can't help but think how the principles of ACT, of, of TCL, Training for Community Living, right? I, I'm just stunned at how many of those principles are now so mainstream and they were so radical. I was also surprised, I think I've mentioned before how much I enjoy the history of these kinds of podcasts, the history of lithium where we talked about shaving um, a brick of lithium and shaving lithium off and putting it in capsules to figure out if, it, if patients could take it and have benefit. But the, the thing that I was left with on this podcast that was sort of like one of those, huh, ACT teams were not the only thing that were tried during that time, right? There was a lot of emphasis on partial hospitalization. There was emphasis on transitional housing, uh, sort of like what we see with, it's a modified group home, but it's very transitional in the movement to the community, very different than some of the DSPD group homes that you talked about, Danny. But something else that, that I saw was that there was a time, at least in Denver, where they were trying to place patients with schizophrenia into like surrogate parent homes, almost like foster care of some sort, that didn't go so well, right? There were a lot of things that were tried, and this is one of the things that stuck around, and the principles not only stuck around, it may not be as critical to have a Fidelity Act team now, but it does look like it's critical to have the principles of a Fidelity Act team, right? That seems to be the key that I took away from all of this. Scott, you're thinking over there, that's my last word, but I wonder if you have any thoughts about that before we call it. Um... I mean, I, overall, I enjoyed this podcast. I felt like I learned so much more, especially with the whole uh, history of how it started. Um, and I know I didn't go in depth on like the use, like the usefulness of it, because initially I was wanting it to um, uh, be more focused on the homeless patients, mm -hmm. especially with the long-acting injection psychosis. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, but since that not everybody knows about the act, then I think, you know, just talking about what it is and uh, putting it out there so the other students also know uh, about ACT teams. About ACT team is yeah, that's really interesting because I, I don't know if you know this. Have you ever talked to Martin about his experience going down to the Colorado River? He lived in Moab and as a nurse uh, in a community mental health setting, so uh, Martin is one of our nurses here at the state hospital, he would walk down to the Colorado River to the homeless encampments and find patients and give them long-acting injections to help them stay well. And uh, that seemed to work a whole lot better than trying to get patients up to the uh, community mental health center, right? Mm -hmm. And then if you also talk to uh, some of the people that were involved in the trials using in Vega, they went down to, I want to say it's Skid Row in, in LA, and they had a series of patients who were homeless and they met with those patients every, every month to just give them the injections and the data that they collected with the use of the long-acting injections was, was just absolutely stunning. The, the reduction in homelessness, the reduction in uh, time spent in the, in, the, uh, in the LA County Jail, which I think is currently the largest mental health facility in the world. Um, right, these, these changes are phenomenal, and, and uh, the idea of long-acting injections, ACT teams, homelessness, and then that, you know, somehow getting that toehold to move people to a home, a place to live, right, and basic uh, living necessities, I think that's a pretty valuable thing for our society to consider and how we would go about that. So 
great idea for a topic, and I'm glad that we were able to at least touch on that at the very end. And if you get a chance, talk to Martin about it. He had a great experience doing it. Oh, for sure. <laughs> Guys, how about if we stop here? And uh, on that note, team out. Team, team out. out.